This last week has been uh, really great. I've enjoyed being in the small groups, the life groups, uh, groups meeting at homes. Uh, We've been studying through the book of John, actually just looking at the seven signs, the seven miracles that Jesus performed so as to signal to others in a clear way who he really is. And so that's been great. Uh, I've enjoyed the interactions with people that I know, but I'm getting to know better. Uh, you can get to know people one-on-one, face-to-face, but you can also get to, to know people in, in groups and not just through the direct interaction. You can get to know people by watching the way people interact with other people. In fact, how many of y'all have ever done this? You go to a mall or you're in a restaurant and you just are watching other people. You're, maybe you're there by yourself. You just, you just enjoy people watching. My, my dad does that. I kind of do that. Um, you can get to know people by watching how they interact with their children or grandchildren. You can get to know people how they interact with the rich or the poor, or the, the foreigners, uh, the, the strangers, or, or those that are outcast. You can get to know people by watching how they interact with a variety of different people. Well, that's also true with regards to Jesus. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks, actually the next seven weeks, we are going to get to know Jesus better by seeing how... Jesus interacts with a variety of people. The title of this series is just God with us with others because Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God with us with others and hopefully as we see the way he interacts with the poor or with the rich or with the you know, righteous or self-righteous and the unrighteous and all the rest, we'll be able to get to know who Jesus is even better than we do now. Um, which, by the way, speaking of getting to know Jesus, whether it's in small groups or through this series, I really want to encourage you to try watching The Chosen. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? The Chosen. Okay, several of you here. Okay. If you've not heard of this, it is the largest crowdfunded series of its kind. Um, you can go to your, your app store on your iPhone or smartphone or iPad or whatever your device is, download The Chosen. It's free. And the chosen, you know, the Messiah, the chosen one of God, that's what's being talked about here. It's just a representation of Jesus. And there's a tagline that is simply, you know, see Jesus through the eyes of those he touched. That's the whole idea. And Paul uh, Didion, who introduced me to the series, and I, we, we agree, and I think Pam Kang, I visited with her about this before, it's probably the best presentation of Jesus on film that you're going to find. Now, all kinds of different Jesus films and movies show you something But I love the way that Jesus comes across here. And so really, it's not just for believers. If you're an unbeliever, I would just encourage you, take a look. They they present Jesus really, really well, biblically, responsibly, and in a way that just kind of resonates with the Jesus that I've come to know over several years. But hopefully you'll be watching that as we're doing the series and going through the small groups and all the rest. But for now, today, let's go ahead and kick off this series of God with us with others by looking at God with us with the worldly rich. We're going to look at one character in particular who interacts with Jesus. His name is Zacchaeus. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. The text is Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him 
since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, I have to warn you that in these retellings of the stories, things are rather compressed I believe that right here in verse 6, he came down at once and welcomed him gladly, welcomed him gladly to his house. A lot transpires there in that brief little verse. Verse 7, it says, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. So they're muttering quite a bit even after Zacchaeus is no longer in the picture. But Zacchaeus stood up, probably he's in the house, probably they've had a meal together. Probably he's standing up from the table, would have been reclined on one arm, stands up and he says to all after having visited with Jesus and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Uh, when it comes to Zacchaeus, the text is really clear. It tells us a couple of very simple things. He was wealthy and he was a tax collector. And this shows us that basically anyone can receive Jesus. Anyone can come to faith in Christ. But financial resources oftentimes are a rather large roadblock. But let's just go ahead and think through Zacchaeus. Who is he? He's a wealthy tax collector. Now, in our day, of course, tax collectors are different than the ones back in Jesus' day. Nobody really likes paying taxes that much. If you do like paying taxes, I want to meet you because I've never met a person who enjoyed paying taxes. And it's unfair. We just don't like IRS agents either. If you work for the IRS, we're very glad that you're here. We welcome all kinds of people. And if somebody asks you, what do you do for a living? You're probably not going to tell them, I work for the IRS. You just say, I work for the government. And I'm sorry, that's really not exactly fair. We don't like paying taxes, especially now that we know we don't really need to send the government our money. They can just print more. And so when we, when we send in our tax form this year, we're just sending in a ream of paper and, you know, like a cartridge of ink and just saying, here, use this, keep the extra leftovers, okay? We, we're not really wild about taxes. In Jesus' day, though, it was different. Tax collectors then were unparalleled by tax collectors in our day because tax collectors in Jesus' day were employed by the Roman government, the foreign occupying force. And whenever Rome would come into a territory and conquer a colony, of course, they would want to keep the people down. And one of the ways to do that was with heavy taxation. The burden was significant. It wasn't fair. It was exorbitant because whenever the the Romans would come into a territory, whenever they would move into a space, they would basically take bids. And people would put in a bid. I think I can raise this much money for the Roman government. And whoever had the highest bid was the person who received the right to tax collect in that area, in that region. And so it went to the highest bidder which meant the tax collector has to work really hard to get what it is that he bid. And if the tax collector collects more than is actually contracted to be given to the Roman government, he gets to keep the extra. He gets to line his pockets. So in short, the tax collector was somebody who was a government-supported, legalized thief. 
Nobody likes a person like that. On top of all of this, besides just betraying his people, um, even tax collectors apparently didn't really like themselves. They didn't like other tax collectors because you can't betray your people without fracturing your soul in the process. On top of all of this, we know that he's a chief tax collector. We don't know exactly what that meant. Is he a tax collector over tax collectors or is he a chief tax collector because his area is extremely big? We're not exactly sure the meaning of the word here. But he is the chief tax collector of a city like Jericho, which is a, a centrally significant trade center. So he's very wealthy, and he would have been looked upon by other people as a chief trader, as an apostate of apostates. Nobody liked the tax collector. The Roman soldiers didn't like tax collectors because even though the tax collector worked for them, they had no respect for somebody who would betray their own people because even though though the Romans occupied a territory not their own, they didn't betray their own people. Jews didn't like tax collectors. Tax collectors didn't necessarily like tax collectors. There's this moment in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus tells a story about a tax collector who goes to pray and he prays and he doesn't even look up to heaven, can't even look up to the sky, beats his chest, says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you think, well, is that an extraordinary tax collector? No, I think a lot of tax collectors felt that way, completely, utterly unworthy, utterly alone. If you've watched any of The Chosen, you know that Matthew, who's a tax collector, is very lonely. Nobody wanted to have anybody, anything to do with him. The only time anybody would interact with the tax collectors when they had to under the force of Roman soldiers, Roman soldiers would oftentimes accompany the tax collectors because people would want to attack the tax collectors and because people wouldn't want to pay. And so the Roman soldiers had to be there so as to enforce the tax collection. It wasn't just sort of subtle collaboration. It was open, in-your-face collaboration. People just wanted to spit on these guys. And if you want to know how tax collectors were viewed, you don't have to go much further than verse 7 because there it says when Jesus wants to go to his house, everybody mutters. When everybody saw this, they murmured, they muttered against him. What's also interesting about this passage is we know that Jesus, as he's passing through Jericho, he's about 10 days, more or less 10 days away from the cross. He doesn't have any sunrises or sunsets left. But for some reason, in the midst of all of these, you know, moral, religious people, the moral majority, he picks out Zacchaeus. He goes to Zacchaeus. Everybody hates Zacchaeus. Why does Jesus do this? What is Luke trying to communicate here? It's not that complicated when you read through the book of Luke, because you see that that there are six different occasions where tax collectors are referenced and almost always, well, actually all of them are somewhat positive. They're they're put in a a positive light, which is very strange. In chapter 3, and we're talking about the book of Luke, in chapter 3, the tax collectors go out to Jesus to be baptized by him and say, what do we have to do? Then they, then the, the tax collectors also in, in chapter 5, one of them, Matthew, is called by Jesus uh, and he becomes an apostle, a tax collector. Then in the next chapter, or chapter 7 rather, you've got tax collectors who, who are listening to Jesus and they believe that what he says is God's way, but the Pharisees, in contradiction, they don't believe what Jesus is saying is the way of God. And then you get to chapter 15 and it talks about how sinners and tax collectors gather around Jesus, it appears that they're so much more interested in hearing Jesus than the righteous religious majority. Then in the next chapter, or chapter 18, 
you have uh, Jesus telling that parable, a publican and a Pharisee went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee prays this self-congratulatory prayer. The Pharisee doesn't look up to heaven, beats his chest. I, I'm not even, you know, I'm, I, I'm not worthy to be here, you know. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that guy, not the Pharisee, but the tax collector went home justified. And then we get to Zacchaeus, who Jesus singles out, says, I'm coming to your house today. What is happening here? We also know in the book of Luke, he is very positive towards Samaritans, which Samaritans are very negative, at least in the eyes of the, the Jews. He's the only one who tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and the Good Samaritan is the hero of the story. And then there's, there's the only occasion of the telling of the prodigal son. That's in the book of Luke. There's a common theme here, and here's the theme. Jesus has a thing for those who are despised. Jesus is attracted to outlaws and undesirables, and outlaws and undesirables are attracted to Jesus. Or put a little bit differently, if you have a taste for religion, if you like religion, you generally don't like the gospel. And if you like the gospel, you generally don't like religion. It's just the way that it has a, a tendency of working. In fact, most of the time, with the exception maybe of Nicodemus, most of the time when uh, you're dealing with or Jesus is dealing with people who are in the religious middle, who are not on the extremes, the, the not, they're not socially undesirable and all the rest, if you're dealing with the religious moral middle, the situations are kind of uncomfortable. But Jesus just has this thing for people who are on the periphery, for those who are marginal. He has a thing for people who are socially marginalized, like lepers and tax collectors and the poor. Jesus is attracted to those who are morally on the periphery, on the margins, like the pimps and the prostitutes. He has a thing for the people who are culturally marginalized. He has a thing for the people who are physically on the boundaries of the periphery, like, you know, the paralyzed and the blind beggars. Jesus just goes for these people, and the reason that he does this is because of his love and because of his wisdom. He goes after these people because of his love, because he knows they've, they, they've been rejected by the religious people, but he also goes with them in his wisdom and his shrewdness because he knows they're going to receive the gospel in a way that religious people don't because they're in a position to receive the gospel because they've been told by religious people that they're locked out. In fact, when you get to the gospels, when you study the life of Jesus, you see that really it's only when the 80% middle gets to the point where they see that they're no different than people on the margins, it's only then that they actually receive the gospel. It's almost like somebody has to de develop a distaste for what is taught in religion before they can actually receive what it is that Jesus offers. It's not because Jesus doesn't want all people to be saved, but some people are not ready to receive Jesus, and those who are especially religious are the last ones to get in on the gospel. Let me give you an illustration of this. But Paul, if you could come on up here in the Nelson. Uh, I'm going to share an illustration that was uh, shared with me when I was younger. And I'm not knocking the illustration because... There are positives here uh, in the illustration. Thank you, guys. Perfect. Uh, there's a lot of positives in this illustration. It was Basically, it was communicated to me that, that God, as a holy, holy God, uh, can't receive sin. It can't take sin into heaven, okay? I had a friend who I roomed with in seminary, and he did this kind of interesting illustration. He baked a cake, a chocolate cake, but he put a little bit of doggy do in the cake 
And then he offered it to people. You know how many people wanted it? Nobody. Even there's this little bit in there, you don't want it. And he said, well, that's how it is with, with sin. God doesn't want sin in heaven. He's a holy, holy, holy God. has an extraordinary distaste for sin. Well, this is a, along those lines. I was taught this when I was younger. You've got God, and he's, you know, as white as snow, pure, and he only drinks, you know, uh, whole, holy milk, W-H-O-L-E-Y, whole, holy milk. But, you know, we've got a little bit of sin, and, or a lot of sin, and you just can't sin because God doesn't take even a little bit into heaven. It hurts the relationship, makes it impossible. And so this was kind of the illustration that, I, that I've heard and I've used, and there's something to, to it. If you put a little bit of chocolate in there, you'd say, well, that's like 0.001%. I mean, it's not most of it, but you stir it up, and you know what? Sin, sin permeates the whole. This is still mainly milk, but there's a little bit of sin in there, but it permeates the whole, and in order for this to be this, God has to do a miracle and cleanse this of the sin. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then there are people like, I'm not going to mention any names. Tolbert. And uh, I'm just I'm kidding. Actually, I'm praying for him because he's going to be taken off for five months. I'm going to miss him so much. I don't have to use somebody else for illustrations now. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you got, it's a little bit. Yeah, you add some more? Okay. That's, I'm sorry. Tolbert, you know, most of the time I don't take people correcting me from the floor, but I'll, I'll do that. Um, all right, there we go. So there, you know, that's a little, it's a little more chocolatey. Uh, so, you know, that's chocolate milk and that's chocolate milk. They both need to be purified. They're both equally in need. Neither one of them is this. But frankly... You know, if this has a sin problem, this really has a sin problem. I mean, we all need Jesus, but, you know, some of us just need Jesus a lot more. That's kind of what I came away from, this. Like, yeah, yeah, everybody needs to be saved. Or here's another illustration. You probably heard this. God's on one side of the chasm. You're on the other. If you're going to get over to God, well, it's 100 yards away. If you are a long jumper like Bob Beeman and you can go... 29 feet plus in the air, you're still going to be dead at the bottom of the chasm. You're not going to make it. You're going to fall short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then there are some people, uh, maybe, you know, a little kid, he jumped three feet. Uh, doesn't jump near as far, still equally dead at the bottom of the chasm. We all fall short of the glory of God. But some of us jump further than others. Now, the problem in, in this thinking, and it is a problem, is, yeah, 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 we've sinned, but we're not like these people. You know, back in Jesus' day, everybody knew that they'd sinned. Remember the time when the woman gets stoned and Jesus says, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. Nobody throws a stone. You know why? Because they, they know they've sinned. There's this whole sacrificial system, and there's this whole priesthood. You know why that's there? Because everybody knows they have sin that needs to be covered. It's just that there's us normal people and the sinners. 
there's us, and then there's the tax collectors. They're just categorically in another world. Now, here's the problem with that. It's, it's kind of right, but it's sort of pretty much all wrong. Because what the story of Nicodemus teaches us, or not Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, what the story of Zacchaeus teaches us is not just that even sinners can be saved. It's that only people who see themselves as sinners can be saved. Jesus is passing through town, and he picks out Nicodemus, Zacchaeus. We've got to get rid of all the Emuses in the Bible. <laughs> This is why we didn't name Nathan and Emus, because I'd get him so confused with people. No. It, it, Zac, Zacchaeus is singled out. Zacchaeus, Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today. Zacchaeus opens his house. Jesus comes there. And everybody else, the Bible says, all the others mutter. You know who received salvation that day? Only this. Not this. Because the crowd saw themselves as somehow categorically different than Zacchaeus. And so Zacchaeus came, came to receive Christ. Salvation came to somebody's house, but it was only his and it was none of theirs. To the degree that you see yourself as better, superior, to the degree that you're condescending toward others, to those degree you're not in the place to receive Jesus. It's not that Jesus doesn't want to come to everybody's life. It's that he's not welcomed. Only those who know they have no claim on God can welcome him. Otherwise, you're religious. When I come to these kinds of texts, it does give me pause. Is there something in me that was condescending do i look down on other people do i feel better do i feel that because i am me that somehow i have a claim to god that others don't or that i have less need for jesus than others do to the degree that you sense that superiority to the degree that you feel because of you that you have a better claim or a bigger claim or a clearer claim on god than somebody else you still don't understand sin Because sin isn't just a little bit of chocolate added to the mix. Sin is this entire disposition that I don't need the Lord and Savior because I can be my own Lord and Savior. And then finally, one day you get to the point where you repent not just of the little chocolate in your life, but you repent of your own righteousness. Or put a little bit differently, you come to a point where you recognize, you know, my morality and religiosity and discipline and decency... My using those things in order to be the Lord and Savior of my own life is not any better or really any different than someone like Zacchaeus using lawlessness and self-indulgence in order to be his own Lord and his own Savior. Sin is a disposition in our lives that keeps God at bay. And people can be their own Lord and their own Master and their own Savior in so many different ways. We might have different particular issues, but until you see yourself as fundamentally as much in need as anyone else and no different than anybody else, you have not yet come to a position where you can receive Jesus because you still want religion, not the gospel. Or let's change it a little bit. Think about lostness. Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save the lost. 
I've come to seek and to save not what was found, but, but the lost. Have you seen yourself as lost? Every bit as lost as the other person. If you have two things that are lost, is one lost thing more lost than the other lost thing? If it's lost, it's lost. Either it's found or it's lost. There's not a sort of lost or sort of found. If you've not seen yourself as lost, you're not in a position to be found. Now, some of us here were thinking, okay, well, that makes sense. There's an internal coherence and all the rest, and, and I want to be found. The question that I want to ask in the remainder of our time here is, well, then, is there something you can do to be found? If you get found by Jesus, is there something that you can do? And the answer is, well, yes, you can do what, what basically Zacchaeus does. Zacchaeus puts, him in, puts himself in the position to see Jesus, to see who Jesus is. Because all salvation comes down to knowing Jesus, to seeing Jesus for who he is. Later on, Jesus, who's been received by Zacchaeus, says salvation has come to his house today. You know why Jesus says this? Because Jesus knows that Christ is more central to Christianity than Buddha is to Buddhism or Muhammad is to Islam or Moses is to Judaism. They're inextricably linked. To receive Jesus is to receive salvation. But you will not receive him until you see him for who he is. Look at Zacchaeus. He runs ahead of the crowd. Why? He gets into the tree. Why? To see what Jesus looked like? To see if he had a beard? No. We know he had a beard. Actually, we don't know that he had a beard. But he probably had a beard. Zacchaeus doesn't care what Jesus looks like. What he's concerned about is seeing who Jesus is. And so he's so desperate to see who Jesus is, he doesn't mind, you know, the, the embarrassment of running. When you were a man in Jewish culture, you didn't run. That's what children did. In the story of the prodigal son, you have the father who runs after the prodigal son. Why? Because he's just so passionate, he forgets himself, but it's embarrassing. Men didn't run, and when you're rich, you, you've basically gained the right to saunter in public. And he certainly wouldn't want to run in front of the crowd. He'd want to hang out behind the crowd because he's just going to lay low because all people want to do is spit on him. But he runs ahead of the crowd and he gets into the tree, which is something that only children did. They would climb trees. It was beneath the dignity of a man. But Zacchaeus doesn't care about his dignity in the moment because he just wants to be in a position to see who Jesus is. For some of us, very practically, what that means is humbling ourselves a little bit Getting into the Bible, getting into a small group, even if you're still seeking and you say, well, I'm just not so sure about this. When the pastor says, turn over to the book of Matthew, you can say, what is that? And where is that? And I thought you just had one book. You just start asking questions. And is your dignity going to have to take a hit a little bit? Well, yes, it does for Zacchaeus, but he doesn't care because if you want salvation, you've got to put yourself in a position where you can get to see who Jesus is. Now, there's a whole lot to see about Jesus, and we're seeing these things in our Bible studies during the week. We're seeing these things, and we'll see these things in this series, getting to see Jesus through those that he's touched. You're going to get to know Jesus better by watching, you know, the chosen, however it is. But let me just give you a couple of takeaways real quickly concerning who we see Jesus to be here. What is Jesus revealing here in his interactions with Zacchaeus? Well, there's a couple of things. And the first is uh, it's real simple. You, you see that God wants to be your friend. Uh, to go over to somebody's house 
was to receive an invitation for friendship. You didn't go to somebody's house, especially somebody like Zacchaeus, without publicly stating some sort of an allegiance or some, some sort of acceptance. That's why everybody mutters even after Jesus is left. They're still talking about this because this, that's friendship. You see over in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is at Matthew's house, the tax collector, and he's there with his disciples and some Pharisees somehow for some reason are coming by and they ask the disciples, why does your master eat with sinners and tax collectors? Now, Jesus is there, but you know how sometimes you talk about somebody and they're in your midst and the reason you're talking about somebody in front of them is because you disdain them and you don't even want to talk to them directly. Something like that is going on right here with Jesus. Jesus is there. He's in the midst of sin. It's despicable. They're not going to even talk to him. They're going to ask his disciples in front of him, but Jesus does not play along with them. Well, you tell them that I said, no, he just talks to them directly and says, listen, I didn't come for the healthy. The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick. And he says, go and learn what this means. And he quotes from the Old Testament and says, you know, uh, learn what, what, learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he says, I have not come for the righteous, but for sinners, people who see categorically over here. The problem with the Pharisees, even though they knew about sin and the atoning sacrifices, the whole sacrificial system and all the rest, is they just thought they're over here and people over here. And Jesus says, you've got to see yourself over here because if you're over here, I didn't come for you. I did come for all humankind, but you can't receive me because you're not in the right position. I've come for sinners. The whole thing of the intimacy, too, is communicated in the eating because in our day, most of the time you go to somebody's house, you have a plate, you got, you know, napkins and a fork and a knife and a spoon and you might have your separate cup or, or maybe even a couple of cups like, a, you know, water glass and a wine glass or a water glass and a tea glass or whatever the case may be. You've got different things. Sometimes people would share the same cup. Sometimes people would eat out of the same bowl. You, you look at... Middle Eastern customs and maybe somebody's leaning on one arm reclined at the table and they're eating with the right hand because the left hand is unclean and they're dipping their hands into the same bowl and eating after each other. That's what you do with friends. That's what you do with family. I was thinking about, you know, when I was growing up, I, my, my mom would tell me, don't drink after those other kids. You know, you'd go play and you'd have one bottle as a, you know, elementary school or junior high or high school, or you'd be, you know, playing on your basketball team or football team or something, somebody had a drink and they were going to share it with you. And the only way you get it is if you drink after them. Mom said, don't drink after these people. So I did what any good kid would do. I listened to my dad who said, don't listen to your mom. And so, you know, I drink, no, I don't, I'm sorry, mom. She's watching right now. She's probably hitting my dad. That's not appropriate for church. Okay. Anyways, uh, you would drink after people. You know why you would do that when you were growing up? Because they're your friends. Now, you didn't drink after everybody, and you wouldn't share a sandwich with anybody. But if they're your friend, if they're your family, you would. That's very much what's going on here. Jesus is desperate to be your friend. He wants to be your friend. God's extending friendship to you over Jesus. There's something else, though, that's very clear here, and that is God wants to be your friend but he's so desperate to be your friend that it's going to cost him more than it costs you. And this is clear in multiple ways right here in this text. I mean, we know it costs Zacchaeus something. It costs him, you know, the lodging and the food and the drink. He also says, I'm giving away half of everything I own to the poor. I'm giving back four times to anybody that I ripped off. It costs him something, but it doesn't cost him near what it costs Jesus because Jesus suffers his reputation. 
There's this passage over in Philippians where a certain version, I think the King James Version, talks about how Jesus made himself of no reputation. When you are, when you're a, a good person, especially in Jesus' day, the thing that you guarded more than anything else was your reputation. And when you're God, to give up your reputation, that's giving up a lot. Zacchaeus already was disreputable. No, everybody murmured against Zacchaeus all the time. That's not anything new. But Jesus enters into the murmuring, and now everybody, including the moral majority and the religious central folks, everybody in town, the Pharisees and the normal people, and what they're, everybody's murmuring against Jesus. All of what Zacchaeus has probably deserved Jesus undeservedly is getting, but he pays that price so as to enter into a relationship with you and with me. We also know that when you go a little further in the story, like 10 days later, Jesus goes up on a tree of his own. Voluntarily, he allows himself to be lifted up. And this is where a lot of people, Jews in particular, have had difficulties because The whole concept of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction. You know, the Holy One, the Chosen, the Holy One of God, crucified, hanged on a tree, that can't happen. The Messiah, if he were the Messiah, couldn't possibly deserve this. Now, as Christians, we believe because of the resurrection, that's right. He doesn't deserve this, but he did it. For someone who didn't deserve it. You go to the Old Testament law, it's pretty clear. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 through 23. If anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed, and you hang his body on a tree, you are not to leave his corpse on a tree overnight, but are to bury him that day, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Now, in the second century B.C., just about 150 years or so before Christ, there was a scholar who was associated with the Essene community, which would have been in the, you know, north of the Dead Sea area. There was this Essene scholar or someone associated with them who basically reinterpreted Deuteronomy, kind of gave a reinvigorated interpretation, taking in a few verses from Leviticus, and also the book of Numbers, and also priestly understandings of the day. And so you have this revamped book of Deuteronomy, or interpretation of some of Deuteronomic law, and when this Essene rewrote this, he considered it to be authoritative Torah, law of God. These scrolls were discovered, oh, you know, about 2,000 years later in 1956. There were some Bedouins who discovered two sets of these documents, in caves north of the Dead Sea. Uh, These scrolls are called the Temple Scrolls. And here's what we read that parallels the Deuteronomy passage. If a man, so this would have been the understanding or the understanding of many in Jesus' day. If a man informs against his people, delivers his people up to a foreign nation, and betrays his people, this sounds an awful lot like a tax collector, you shall hang him on the tree so that he dies. On the word of two or three witnesses shall he be put to death and they shall hang him on a tree. 
If a man commits a crime punishable by death and he defects into the midst of nations and curses his own people, the children of Israel, again, that sounds an awful lot like a tax collector. You shall hang him also on the tree so that he dies. And their bodies shall not remain upon the tree, but you shall bury them the same day for those who hang on the tree are accursed by God and men. You must not defile the land which I give you as an inheritance. On a hill called Golgotha, history tells us, Jesus voluntarily hung on a tree. Why? So Zacchaeus could come down out of his. So that a holy, holy God could have a relationship with the likes of us. So that Jesus could be welcomed into his home and into his life. There's a whole lot that the interactions between Jesus and others show us, but this passage shows us enough whereby a person can be saved. Do, do you see that you're not any better than Zacchaeus? Do you see that, or have you seen, that you were every bit as lost or are every bit as lost as Zacchaeus, that you are not just better than everybody else, but categorically falling short of the glory of God, categorically a sinner? Do you see that? Do you see Christ's love for you? Do you see that he wants a relationship with you? Do you see that he has taken your place? If you see that much, you've seen enough to be saved. You've seen enough to welcome Jesus into your life. And that's the gospel. The gospel is not religion. Religion is, I'm going to work my way to God. I'm going to try harder, clean up my act and all the rest. And I'm just telling you, I could... I could work on that chocolate milk forever and I'm never going to get the chocolate out of the milk. It's, I can't do anything to rid myself of sin. I'm a lawbreaker. It's just this what it is. I need someone to cover for me. That's what Jesus did. He came and lived the life you should live, died the death you should have died. Because the gospel is not you work your way to me. The gospel is Jesus says, I'm coming to you. You open up your house, I'm coming to you today. And Zacchaeus didn't even invite Jesus. Jesus invited himself in. In fact, this whole notion of, well, you say a prayer so that one day when you die, you can go to heaven, that's a little bit off. What the gospel is, is God wants to come right smack dab into the middle of your life right now if you'll just receive him. And he's done everything to make that happen. Do you see your need? Do you see yourself as someone who's lost? Do you see Christ's passion for you? Do you see that he's taken your place? If you do, well, you can receive him. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm not tricking anybody into doing anything that that you don't want to do. Uh, But if you've kind of come to a point where you recognize, yeah, I know, I've tried to be my own Savior. And it wasn't just through the bad things that I did. Even some of the good things I'm using in my life to sort of stay in control and to cover myself. That's the problem. It's your independence from God. It's that you've not wanted anything to do with Him and you've done it in different ways through your lawlessness and sometimes even by keeping the law. It's crazy how creative we are to keep God at a distance. But maybe, just maybe, you recognize that you're lost and Jesus only came to save lost people. You know that you're a sinner and you know you need forgiveness. You need Him to save you. If you recognize that and his passion for you and what he's done, you can simply pray right now. 
just between you and God. God, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. And it's not just that I did some things wrong. I did some things wrong knowing them to be wrong. And, and I've even done some, some good things, even religious things. But the whole point in doing that was somehow to earn your favor because I preferred religion over the gospel. And I didn't really come clean in terms of just asking for the forgiveness. I thought that this was about earning it. And what I'm discovering is it's 100% by grace. And so, God, right now, I, I just I confess, I'm lost. I need to be found. I know that I, I'm a sinner, and I need salvation. And for some reason, God, you still want to come in and be my friend. And I also know that you paid the price for that to happen. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life I should have lived, died the death that I should have died. He lived the life I should have lived, and in order for me to come down and be with him and him with me, that... He was lifted up on that cross and, and bore the, the curse of my sin for me. And so, God, I know that I've, I know I have no claim on you, but I also know that 100% by your grace, you want to come in to my life and be my friend. So right now, I'm just, I'm, I'm accepting Jesus. I, I accept Christ as my Savior and as my Lord. Thank you, God, for saving me.